The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. A scripture reading this morning will be taken from Psalms uh, 97, verses 1 through 12. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes out before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all ye gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O oh, you who, uh, who, who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of, all, of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O oh, you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. You can be seated. I have the joy of introducing our guest pastor this morning, Pastor Doug Searle. And I can honestly say that uh, I'm just going to have fun. Pastor Searle. Pastor Searle has been one of the uh, most influential men in my spiritual growth, my uh, maturity in, in the word and the things of Christ. When I came to CBC at the end of 2008, uh, Doug was very much involved in uh, kind of in, in the church. The uh, for those of you who were here back then, this this big opening didn't used to be there. There used to be another door, and during our second service at that time, we had two services. But at, during that second service, Doug had a Sunday school class that would go back there, and for the longest time, it was the the Hebrews class which is near, to, near and dear to my heart, uh, deeply influential on me uh, and many, many others. Along with that, Doug started a Bible Institute uh, called Extension uh, that was, uh, again, just deeply formative for my life. Doug, Doug has been an incredibly uh, important piece of the puzzle that is CBC as, as his brother Sheldon Searle uh, mentioned this morning, back in the day, he was a youth pastor and he's been an elder and probably everything in between. Um, so we are we are deeply grateful for Doug. The reason he's a guest pastor today is because what year did we send you to, to suffer in Bonaire? In 2013, uh, we had an opportunity to send Doug to uh, International Bible Church on the island of Bonaire. 
uh, where a church that we had supported for years and the they needed a new pastor. So we were able to send Doug and he has been faithfully serving. I, I joke about suffering because it's a tropical island, but it's church work. So we know it's real suffering. <laughs> Uh, but we, we greatly appreciate Doug. And before I go on too long about Doug, there's two words. If I, can, if I can sum up Doug's ministry to my life, there's two words. And that's the two words would, he would be saying right now, stop talking about me and consider Christ. So let's welcome Doug as, as we consider Christ together. Thanks. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate you talking about me. I am not gonna be talking about me. Community Bible Church uh, is my home church. I came to Community Bible Church in 1975. Sheldon said 76 earlier, but uh, I was 15 years old and uh, this has been my church ever since. That was almost 50 years ago. Um, so thank you. Uh, it's a church that for me has lived up to the name. Community Bible Church. And I guess I think the most important part of that name is the Bible part, but the community and the church part has been real for me most of my life in this church and continues to this day. So I wanna thank you for uh, your prayers and your support in the ministry I have now. The ministry I have now, I do regard as an extension of the ministry of this church. Um, and so, so thank you. I appreciate the fellowship of this church every time I'm here. Several people have already mentioned this morning how the friendliness of this fellowship attracted them. And I don't believe that's accidental even though I don't really think it was necessarily intentional on the part of the people who did it. But I do believe it was a simple reflection of God's grace, really experienced in the fellowship of this church. And when we experience God's grace, really, it is transforming, often in ways we don't even notice or think of as important. Like, you smile when 
you say hello to somebody. I have maybe throughout my life a growing conviction of the significance of simple fellowship, simple togetherness, just being present with one another is the thing itself. You know, there's a, there's an old saying. I think it's an old saying. I tried to look up who said it, and when I read who said it, I didn't believe it because I think it's older. The saying is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You've heard that, I'm sure. The problem with that saying is it does not specify the main thing that we are keeping as the main thing. In fact, typically when it's said, it's flexible. Whatever your main thing is, the main thing is to keep it the main thing. But what is the main thing? Really? And is there one? Now we're in a church, a Bible church, so I think if I ask the question, what is the main thing, many really good answers are happening in your heads. Like the gospel, or the word of God. Well, there's a problem with those answers. Did I just say there's a problem with answering the gospel when you're asked what is the main thing? Yes, I did, because what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, I hope some of you are saying in your heads, right, as I say, what is the gospel? You are saying the good news. We have not solved the problem yet. What is the good news? What is the main thing? Well, I'm going to propose to you the main thing is fellowship. What is the goodness of the good news? What makes the good news good? Fellowship. And I would propose to you that fellowship has always been the main thing. And when I say always, I mean always. Fellowship is the main thing. The triune God is an eternal fellowship. of persons. I would, I believe I could make a pretty good case that that is the main thing you could say about God, is that God is an eternal fellowship. 
Some of us might want to say, but glory, but glory, but glory. And I think, what is the glory of God? Do you know that glory is something that is not possible in isolation? If God is not an eternal fellowship, then he is not eternally glorious because glory is uh, significance appreciated. Glory is greatness noticed. And in the eternal fellowship of God, there is eternal glory because there are eternal persons who are in an eternal fellowship and so glorify one another. And apart from that fellowship, I'm not sure how you get any glory. God is, how do you complete that sentence? When you're a child and hopefully ever since, you complete that sentence with the single word, love. Well, you can't have love with one person. And when we say God is love, we are making a statement of his eternal nature. God is love, always has been love. And that can mean nothing else that the, than that the Father loves the Son who loves the Spirit and the Father and the Spirit loves and maybe even is the expression of the love of the Father and the Son for one another in an eternal relationship of love. Fellowship has always been the main thing. We, human beings, were created in the likeness of God. That means we're created as God's children. Fellowship, relationship, family, community, an eternal fellowship, and we are the expression of that fellowship. Do you know what was the first thing in, in the human existence? What was the first thing that was not good? You remember? That the man is alone. And you might have read in chapter one of Genesis, that observation is made in chapter two. It's not good that the man should be alone, God observes. It's the very first not good thing after a long list of God going, oh, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. It's not good that the man is alone. I'll make him a suitable partner of fellowship. And in chapter one, we read, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. Our biology is constructed for intimate fellowship. We 
We are not intended to be alone. We are intended to be fellowshipping persons. Why? Well, because we're not reflecting the nature of God until we're fellowshipping persons. Because God is a fellowshipping persons. So we're created to walk in fellowship with God, likeness, in order to walk in good fellowship with each other, image. To be reflections of the very nature of God and the very nature of God is a trinity of fellowship of persons. And so not only are we fellowshipping persons in marriage, but we are in society, in the family of man. And this is what glorifies God. What glorifies God is the spreading of his image around the world. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Fill it with what? The fellowshipping persons that reflect the nature of their creator in the creation. That is our calling. The main thing is fellowship. Well, we messed up. Sin came into the whole thing, and of course, this didn't surprise God. It was part of the plan, but okay. What does it mean to sin? What is the bad news ahead of the good news? Sin. Sin. To sin is to act independently from God. That's all it is. To act apart, apart from reliance upon God for some purpose other than his glory. To sin is to cover his image. To, to sin is to promote my own image as though I had one. To decide that my thing is the thing. To choose the knowledge of good and evil over fruitful fellowship with God is sin. That's the nature of sin even now. The uh, Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen said, we are sinners in that we revolve in our own self-reference. We revolve in our own self-reference and do so piously. Sin is a person's disruption of fellowship with God, which inevitably results in the disintegration of good and right fellowship with himself, with other human beings, and with all of creation. You can see this in the story of Adam and Eve, right? When they sin, what do they do? In order to sin, they must quit trusting in the word of God is the real sin. They disobey the law because they have claimed themselves for themselves. And of course, they didn't anticipate it, but as soon as they sin, they don't only not trust God, they don't trust each other either because they have become untrustworthy and they know it. And so 
They have to hide. Sin is a disruption of fellowship. Sin is to act for oneself against others. Sin is the opposite of love. The essence of the moral law of God is relational, right? What are the two summary commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. It's fellowship. Now, the other thing about sin is to sin is to die. Because if you disrupt your fellowship with God, you disrupt your source of being alive. In him is life. So to sin is to die, and to die is to be alienated, to be alienated from fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is life. John 1, 1 John 1. Now the thing is, dead people, which is everyone, Dead people are also, they're not only alienated from God, but being alienated from God, they're also alienated from everyone else. And everything else, breaking from trusting God, immediately corrodes all other trusts. And now nakedness produces shame and a need to cover The other thing about us sinners who are dead and alienated is we're also incapable. We seriously underestimate the significance of turning against God. We are incapable. We can see what's good and right. In fact, we have this built-in, created in a sense of what's good and right. Sometimes we can kind of approximate it in our lives. But even when we do, the scripture says, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And that's a nice way of putting it. Because even acting righteously is unrighteous when we act apart from God. Paul writes, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please him. What is the problem with your righteous deeds? And when Isaiah writes your righteous deeds, he means deeds that are actually righteous according to the law of God. The deed itself is good and right, and yet it is despicable to God. Why? 
Why doesn't he appreciate your good deeds? Because you're doing them on your own, and that is not the plan. The plan is for your righteous deeds to be the expression of his righteousness, not yours. To glorify him, not you. By the way, your righteous deeds being an expression of his righteousness glorifies him and you. Because the most glorious thing that can happen in your life is that you glorify him. Well, without faith, it's impossible to please God. In James, we read this. What causes, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own desires. Let me paraphrase that statement. Conflict among Christian brothers is the result of desires that have not been submitted to God for his provision. I'm going to say that again. Conflict among Christian brothers is the result of desires that have not been submitted to God for his provision. This could include even our righteous desires. Even when we are fighting over differing visions of the right thing to do, we are fighting because we are not trusting God to reveal his clear direction. So we are not willing to be patient with each other or to engage in open, loving conversation. Instead, we stand and fight for what we know is right. Well, if it is right, the head of the church, our good shepherd, will make it clear. We need to ask him, not each other. We trust his leadership, do we not? Sometimes trusting his leadership means waiting for it. Now, if you're thinking of someone who needs to hear this message, you need to hear this message. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Where were we in the story? The story we were in the story was Adam sinned and in Adam all sinned and so in Adam all died. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That is the definition of sin, to operate on your own. It is the opposite of fellowship.
But then in that very same verse, we have the good news. And the Lord has caused the punishment of all our sin to fall on him. Well, that doesn't sound like good news. The good news is the story of God has a hero. The hero of the story, the eternal son who joins us as one of us. In the broken world of our alienation, he lives a human life of perfect righteousness, which means a life of perfect image-bearing fellowship with God the Father. You've been studying the book of John. You've heard this over and over and over. I don't do anything apart from what I see the Father doing. I never operate on my own initiative. That is our calling, to operate in such active fellowship with our loving Father that we exhibit only what he desires into the world. That's actual righteousness. So the Lord Jesus lived that life and then he died. That should not have happened. How does he die? He has no sin. How does he die? God said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he surely did. And so did we in him. Jesus did everything exactly according to the will of the Father every minute of every day of his life. And then he died. He has no sin, yet he experienced the result of sin, death. By which we mean alienation from the fellowship of God. We can't even figure out how that could possibly be. And this is a great matter of great discussion beyond, between all the great theological minds. The man Jesus, having lived a perfectly righteous life, experiences death, which means he experienced some kind of alienation from God. Such that whatever it was he experienced is the judicial equivalent of the punishment of all the sins of everyone who comes to faith in him. <laughs> because he had no sin of his own, his death serves as the punishment of all the sins, all the sin of his people, those who simply receive this gift by faith. God's judgment upon us is carried out 
in the sacrifice of Jesus. And so, we are forgiven. <laughs> Don't ever get used to that. We are forgiven. But we're not only forgiven. We're also justified. Now, some of us might be saying justified and forgiven. Aren't those kind of the same? No. What justified means is we are credited as righteous. So God imputes to us the righteousness of the life that Jesus lived that Jesus lived in shared humanity with us, that righteousness that Jesus lived, God credits to us. The righteousness of a life that is lived in and from active fellowship with God the Father. When God looks at you, he sees you as having lived like that. <laughs> so not just forgiven, justified. It's one thing to have your sins forgotten. It's a whole nother thing to be considered as righteous. And in this union with Christ, we have already been raised from our dead condition and given the opportunity to walk in newness of life, according to Romans chapter 6. Or as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In Romans 6, Paul says, if you died in him, you were also raised in him. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The resurrection is something we look forward to and it is something that has already happened. He has already raised us. So this means not only have we been forgiven and not only have we been justified, not only have we been credited with the righteousness of the life of Jesus, but we have also been given the life itself. It's not just that God has some great imagination and so he gives you credit for something that really he shouldn't give you credit for. 
It's that he has imparted to you the actual life that is in his son. And so together we have a shared life, the life of Jesus himself, the eternal son. We have been received again into the eternal fellowship of the triune God. And that is life. The goal of our redemption is not justification. And us reformed people, we, we focus a lot of attention on justification and rightly so. But justification has a purpose. It is not the goal, it is a means to the goal. It is a necessary factor in the thing that God is really after and that is reconciliation. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To be alive is to know God in Christ. And we might expand that from other texts to say, to know God in Christ by the Spirit, because that's the only way that ever happens. So we are born again. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, being justified is about having peace between us and God, a restored fellowship. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access to God Almighty. Jeremy mentioned Hebrews, one of my favorite books, and it is all about this. So then, draw near. Come on in. You can march into the, before the throne of grace. <laughs> before Christ, the only way to be caught in, before the throne of God is dead, destroyed, utterly undone by the holiness of a righteous God. You do not belong there, but you do now in him. You can march in there like you own the place. You can address almighty God as your Abba. And so Hebrews exhorts us over and over, draw near, draw near. Come on in. Approach the throne of grace for help in time of need. And you will find it. You will find a loving, embracing father, not an angry judge. Fellowship, always been the main thing. Romans, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How did he give you this life? The very life of Christ 
It's described in the book of John that he gave to Jesus the spirit without measure. And he gives us the spirit. We share the life of Christ, the life that is alive. Made in the God's likeness to bear God's image. Fellowship is the thing Jesus died and rose to give you. The best one word summary of the gospel is this. Reconciled. I was his enemy and my only reasonable expectation in relation to God was his eternal judgment. And he has in Christ reconciled me. Second Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, alienated, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded even Christ according to the flesh, but not anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, the righteousness of God. God did not make him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become righteous in our own right. No. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he does that by reconciling us to God, restoring our actual and active fellowship with God so that our righteousness is truly and only an expression of his image bearing. So we are restored to be his children, made in his likeness, in order to have good, righteous fellowship with all other created things bearing his image. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. <laughs> he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's something about this reconciliation that we can notice in this text. It says this, he has made us both one. That is, Jews and Gentiles, Jews who had some part in the covenants of God and Gentiles who had no part in the covenants of God. He's made us both one by the work of his cross. He made us both one to create in himself one new man, thus making peace. Who's he making peace between in this text? Us and God? Not yet. Jews and Gentiles, brothers and sisters in him. That's who. So making peace and to reconcile us to God in one body through the cross. We are reconciled to God in the body together. Earlier in chapter 2, we read this. We, plural, are his workmanship, singular, created in Christ Jesus. This one project made up of all of us together. The atonement not only restores our union with God in Christ by the Spirit, makes us alive, the atonement also restores our unity in the family of God, one new man in Christ, one body of Christ, or as we read at the beginning of chapter 2, he makes us alive together, reconciled all around. He himself is our peace. He doesn't just promise to reconcile us. He has already. We are one body of Christ because that was made by the ministry of Jesus on the cross. Not because we make it. It is made but this is the business of the church. This reconciliation, this message, this gospel of union with God and unity with one another, of fellowship with God that is exhibited in the love of Christ being expressed into the world. This is the business of the church. The mission of the church is the church. our fellowship in Christ by the Spirit with God the Father. If you, well, I'm just going to say it again. The mission of the church is the church. If you doubt that, just read Ephesians. 
where the goal is the building up of the body. The mission of the church is the church. Our fellowship in Christ by the Spirit with God the Father reflected and realized in our fellowship with one another. Jesus himself said this very succinctly. This is how everyone will know you're my disciples. How will people know you've been trained by me? How? You know it, right? If you have love for one another. So people don't really know, it's not really by how well we love those people, it's how, by well, how well we love each other. How will people see we are his disciples by the quality of our fellowship with one another in the church? Paul elaborates on this in chapter 4 of Ephesians. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, how would you do that? To walk in a manner, to live in such a way that reflects the weight of your calling. The calling of the gospel. How would you do that? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's how. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I love it that it doesn't say eager to make the unity of the spirit. Apparently, it's already been made. And if we read chapter 3 and chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, we would know that. Okay, so eager, and eager means in a rush, in a hurry. What that means is I regard any hint of weakness in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in this fellowship which Christ purchased by the hard work of the cross. I regard any perceived lapse in our fellowship as an emergency. And I am rushing to see to that. I am guarding the love of Christ shared in the body of Christ. The fellowship of the saints. Because it is in that fellowship that the world actually can see Christ. And the one thing we need is for the world to see Christ in the love of the church. Eager, eager, eager to maintain the unity. Later he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, not a group of mature men, a mature man, one new man, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed around by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Where is your safety in the great chaos, the doctrinal chaos of this world? Right here. Right here. In the ministry of the word between the saints, in the fellowship of the saints, in the disciplining community of the saints, that's where. How do we grow up so that we're not subject to these winds? We live here in the community of Christ, that's how. So my safety doesn't depend on what I know alone. It also depends on what you might know and how we might help one another when that wind blows. Fellowship is everything. From him, oh, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, is it e- with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, nearly every function of the church, the body of Christ, is mentioned in that text. In one way or another. But I see two principal goals, ends, One is the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And the other is the building up of the body in love. You know, those are really two ways of saying the same thing. Reconciled. Reconciled. Fellowship is the thing itself. It is not the means to some other thing. The other things are only good in the pursuit of good fellowship. Fellowship with God reflected in our fellowship with each other. What we are here to do is to be reconciled, to bring this perfect tense reality, this thing Jesus has done into the present tense reality in which we live, into our everyday consciousness, into our everyday relationships, into our everyday actions, to realize the reconciliation that he has made. To see it, to understand it, and to enact it in real life. We don't need to make it. We need to know it and walk in it. We need to be eager to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What a fantastic opportunity. What a fantastic opportunity. And that is the opportunity of every born again person operating in the fellowship of the saints. You can't really do it by yourself because By yourself is the opposite of it.
And the goal is to operate as the new family of God in the world. Here in the real world, though, it's not always easy to walk in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, as you know. We sometimes do not see eye to eye. Am I right? This sometimes actually drives us apart. So we come back to that word from James chapter 4. Conflict among Christian brothers is the result of desires that have not been submitted to God for his provision. This could include even our righteous desires. Even when we're fighting over different visions of the right thing to do in the life of the church. We are fighting, not trusting. Not trusting God to reveal his clear direction in his good time. So we are not willing to be patient with each other or to engage in open, loving conversation with each other. Instead, we stand and fight for what we know is right. And I must repeat, if you're thinking of someone who needs to hear that message, then you need to hear that message. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they had a thing the book of Acts calls a sharp disagreement. It actually broke their relationship. Curiously, that disagreement was about who they wanted and didn't want on their team. Paul didn't want John Mark on the team because Paul wanted an effective team. <laughs> and John Mark had demonstrated that he might be a hindrance in that. Barnabas wanted John Mark on the team because he saw the long-range benefit of developing Mark as a leader. Barnabas was that kind of guy. In fact, he had done that very thing for Paul himself. Barnabas was the one guy that stood up for Paul when he was Saul, when he was new. Here he is again, standing up for another guy with Paul. They were both right. And they both knew it. And knowing it, they were both caught up in their own rightness. Just enough that it destroyed their partnership. sad it's really sad now I'm reminding you of that story it's at the end of Acts chapter 15 in case you want to look at it I'm reminding you about it for two reasons the first is that such conflicts can occur such conflicts can occur in which everyone is right and everyone is wrong. And they can occur even between the most mature saints 
happened between Paul and Barnabas. So it can happen among any set of elders and pastors in any church anywhere. The second reason I'm recalling that story is to observe that even though such a division among brothers is not good, and it is not good, even though such a division is not good, God is. And God is still working all things for the benefit of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, for the fellowship of the saints with God and with one another. The the immediate result of the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas was that two missionary teams went out instead of one. (laughs) How about that? The long-term result I'm sure among other things, but the one part we know about, the long-term result was that Barnabas succeeded in developing Mark. Mark is the guy we believe that wrote the gospel according to Mark. Which, by the way, we also think might have been a reference source for Matthew and Luke when they wrote their gospels. We don't all agree about that, but... Mark, this guy Paul rejected from his team, wrote scripture. Oh, and also, by the way, Paul eventually recognized him and invited him back into his inner circle when he wrote to Timothy. He said, get Mark and bring him too. He is a great help to me in ministry. (laughs) so even though we can come apart God is bringing us together always 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 he is in the reconciliation business it's the main thing it is the great glorious work of God to restore lost fellowship, to exhibit the fellowship of the triune God in the fellowship of his people. Whoever is the pastor of this church is not the pastor of this church. Whoever's the pastor of this church is a pastor of this church. Jesus, Jesus is the pastor of this church. Jesus is the pastor of every church and the whole church. Pastor, you know the meaning of that word, right? Shepherd, good shepherd. You have good shepherds in this church. Good shepherds. Here's what makes somebody a good shepherd besides Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd and the shepherd. What about these other guys? 
Well, here's what they are. Sheep. Sheep. That's what they are. Sheep. And what it means to be an under-shepherd, as Peter calls us elders in the church, what it means to be an under-shepherd is only to be a sheep that knows where the shepherd is. That's all. That's all. The, the one sheep that sort of goes this way, The, the sheep that sees, keeps an eye out for the good shepherd. <clears throat> Jesus is the pastor of this church and every church, and Jesus has not departed. And here's something. Jesus, unlike the rest of us, was not even a little bit surprised by Ryan's departure. It's been in the Good Shepherd's plan all along. You might even say it happened on purpose, for some purpose. It's kind of scary. Jesus does this that way sometimes. He leads us through something scary to teach us that perfect love casts out fear. And it comes from him. Knowing and trusting him. How do we respond to a challenging situation in the life of our church? In scuba diving, there's a basic rule. There's two basic rules. One is don't stop breathing. It's really the first rule of scuba diving. Don't stop breathing. Don't hold your breath. The second rule is don't panic. If you have a problem, panic will likely lead to bad decisions. How do you avoid panic? Someone tells you the first rule, and more than once. So that when you are tempted to hold your breath, which you, in, a, in a certain situations you will be tempted to hold your breath, when holding your breath will likely kill you. But because you know the first rule is don't hold your breath, then you don't panic in a way that causes you to hold your breath. You rely on the training, right? So many areas where this is true. You rely on training you received before the crisis arose. You rely on training you received before the crisis arose. You don't panic. You do the things that are most likely to produce a positive outcome, sometimes acting against your natural impulses. Don't panic. Do the things you know are good. Pray. 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 If conflict arises because we're not praying, pray. Conflict arises when I don't submit my desires before the throne of grace and ask the Lord to provide instead of you. 
pray. God is the source of all good things and he is diligently providing for all the needs of his children. That is always true, even when you don't see it or feel it. God is the source of all good things and he is diligently providing all the needs of his children. You do not need something if he does not provide it. That is always true, even when you don't see it or feel it. He is doing something really, really good here. What is happening in the life of this church is a magnificent opportunity for the grace of God. Do not be afraid. Pray. <laughs> Pray especially for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace to have real expression in the body of Christ. Pray for the elders among you that they would be completely captivated by the love of Christ to be leading servants in the realization of the reconciliation that Jesus has already made. When you pray, you are directly engaged in the very thing Jesus died to provide. Fellowship with the living God Almighty, who calls himself your father. Is he a good one? Number two, spend time together <laughs> without worrying too much about what we're getting done. The quality of our fellowship is the main thing, not the number of our congregation, not the size of our budget, not the professionalism of our programs. The fellowship, the love of Christ shared, the life of Christ shared. And as we are together, find ways to serve, to do your part in the building up of the body in love. Speak the truth in love and remember, when you're speaking the truth in love, remember the truth is mostly about what Christ has already done, not what we need to get done. We don't actually need to get anything done. We can if we want to and if we are so moved by the Spirit of Christ in the expression of his love. But there is nothing needed from you. There's only opportunity, not demand. So look for the opportunities. Take the opportunities. Point everyone around you to the reconciling sacrifice of Christ that has made us one in him. Spend time together. Love each other. Number three, continue being the good church that you are. Continue being the good church that you are. Keep serving, keep taking care of each other, keep sharing the good news with each other and anyone else who will listen. Keep teaching each other the whole counsel of the word of God. You do these things, you do them well, keep doing them. Keep enjoying each other's company. Keep being the friendliest church.
keep an eye on the good shepherd. Keep being the good church that you are. And number four, if you are in conflict with your brother, ask yourself, what do I want in this situation? Think about it. What is your desire? What do I want in this situation? I know that's a selfish question. I'm telling you to ask it. What do I want? Because James says, what we want is involved here. So think about it. What do I want in this situation? Then ask God, not your brother for that. I want my brother to think like me. Okay. Before you talk to him about it, talk to him about it. Because that's where the conflict comes if I talk to him and not him. Ask God. Then look for a way to serve that brother with no particular expectation of return. Some unrelated way. I don't know, mow the guy's yard or something. Then see if there's a way for you to let go of what you want as a way to express the love of Christ. Just check, see if you can. If you can't, keep talking to the Father. Father's running the whole show. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Yeah, that's what it really says. In every situation, ask this question, what difference does the reconciling work of Christ make here? What difference does the reconciling work, work of Christ make here? How can I see it and bring a concrete expression of it into these relationships? The Lord is good. The Lord has made us one in Christ. And so we are. All we need to do is walk in unity. That made it sound like it was easy. It's challenging sometimes. But because we are so well-loved, we can be so well-loving. Father, thank you for all you do. Lord Jesus, thank you for all you have done. Spirit of God, thank you for giving us new life. Lord, help us to share that life with one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.